distinguished guests, friends, ladies and gentlemen, namaste. Welcome to India Week 2011. One week, one nation, a billion perspectives. Through the initiatives, we at LSE SPICE, the Society for the Promotion of Indian Culture and Ethos, aim to take India to the world as students of the global fraternity. The London School of Economics is a renowned institution for its diverse international atmosphere. And we would like to use this platform to celebrate the spirit of India uh, with all our brothers and sisters from other countries as well. India Week is not about Indians as much as it's about India. Events ranging from Bollywood workshops to India-Pakistan cricket matches, student panel discussions on foreign policy to, bother, to film screenings, language taster sessions to yoga classes, we present to you the cultural kaleidoscope, India. And in this 21st century, India has emerged. I welcome you to our marquee event of India Week 2011, a conversation with Dr. Shashi Tharoor. Without further ado, I would like to hand you over to our chair for the evening, Professor Stuart Corbridge from the Department of International Development and one of the pro-directors at our school. Thank you. Namaste. My uh, name is Stuart Corbridge here. Um, I did my PhD in India a very, very long time ago. Uh, so I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors here at LSE, and I'm substituting tonight for Howard Davis, who sends his apologies. And it's a great pleasure to welcome everybody to the school for this evening's talk by Dr. Dr. Shashi Tharoor. Uh, Dr. Tharoor will speak for about 30 minutes or so, as long as he wants to speak, on the topic of India and China, competition, cooperation, or conflict, a very big topic. Uh, and then we're going to move straight to Q&A. Um, now is the time, please, whilst you've taken your photographs, to turn off your phones and anything else that might be irritating. Um, our speaker tonight, Shashi Tharoor, will hardly need to be introduced to anybody looking around here uh, this evening. But just in case you don't know about our speaker, uh, let me quickly say that Dr. Tharoor earned his PhD, find this remarkable, at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University at the age of 22. I think that's right. Um, which is a great lesson, I think, for any PhD students here from the LSE, if there are any in the room, uh, or a looming threat, we might say, um, a beacon or a looming threat, either way. After leaving Tufts, Dr. Tarour enjoyed a long and very successful career, almost a 30-year career, of course, at the United Nations, uh, where latterly he worked closely with Kofi Annan, and where he served through much of the early part of the last decade as the Undersecretary General for Communications and Public Information. And in 2006, as many of you will also know, Dr. Tarur was nominated by the Government of India for the post of UN Secretary General, a post for which he was finally beaten, uh, not uncontroversially, I think, uh, by Ban Ki-moon. In March 2009, Dr. Tarur was elected to the Lok Sabha, the lower house of the Indian Parliament as the MP for Trivandrum in Kerala, if I can use the old name, for Tiruvananthapuram. <laughs> I know some Hindi, not Malayalam. <laughs> and shortly thereafter, he was sworn in as India's Minister of State for External Affairs, a post he occupied for about a year. Uh, among his many accomplishments, Dr. Tarur is a prize-winning author 
of 12 books, both fiction and non-fiction, including, I think most recently, the best-selling book, The Elephant, The Tiger, and The Cell Phone. Uh, and dare I say, too, that Dr. Turur has had at least one of his novels turned into a Bollywood film. And he fairly recently became, I gather, and I got this from Wikipedia, so it might be wrong. <laughs> An academic admits to that. Um, the first celebrity to get over a thousand followers on, the first Indian celebrity to get over a thousand followers on Twitter. And I was wondering if that was ahead of, you know, Aish and Amitabh and others. We can discuss that one later on. Uh, there are many, many more elements. <laughs> there are many, many more elements to Dr. Tarot's CV than I can possibly rehearse here. Uh, many of you will know about that CV, but we are, of course, delighted to have you with us tonight, not just as an argumentative Indian, to use Amartya Sen's generic phrase, but undoubtedly, too, as one of India's most accomplished and widely recognized public servants. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Corbridge, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, yes, I was dreading that you'd look me up on the internet. Uh, these days, you never quite know what people find out about you when they, uh, whether you've actually done the things to be, to, that, that are ascribed to you. The, the 1,000 on Twitter is about 935,000 out of date. So, that, oh, you said 100,000, I beg your pardon. Well, it's still about 836,000 out of date. So, uh, so we, do have, we do have a large number of people um, on Twitter, but you know these introductions coming out of the internet can be quite amazing. Uh, I have a friend in New York who used to love looking up speakers, not only by their own deeds and misdeeds, but by sins of commission and omission up the family tree. You know the acts of parents and uncles and aunts. And at one point, he found a speaker whose uncle had been electrocuted in the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison for kidnapping and armed robbery, or something equally horrible. Having taken the trouble to look this up, he felt he had to use it. So he said, our distinguished speaker had an uncle who occupied the chair of applied electricity at one of the nation's <laughs> leading institutions. <laughs> Just by way of saying that these kind words should be taken with a pinch of salt, but thank you very much for them. And it is a, a privilege to be addressing you all this afternoon. And I'm very pleased that the wonderfully named Spice is doing so much to um, promote uh, India Week here at the LSE. My topic today deals with the rise of India and China in the world, two countries whose development will have a significant impact on the global system and on the world's sense of where international economic and political power will shift in the decades to come. And the question we must consider is whether the two countries will compete, cooperate, or even enter into conflict. Of course, both China and India are extraordinary success stories of recent years, both have multiplied their per capita income many times over since 1950 and have done so far faster in recent years than Britain or the US did during their spurt of growth after the Industrial Revolution. The idea that both China and India could even triple their current economies in the next 15 years is not implausible to most economists, not even to the World Bank if their annual assessment of global economic prospects is any guide. Now, I'm not an economist. I say this consciously at LSE. I've always been profoundly skeptical of those who issue forecasts of any sort, because to me the future is never quite what it used to be. Uh, but few will disagree that China and India are going to be richer than they are now, both in absolute terms and in relative ones. And that's why it's meaningful to speak of an increasing shift 
of economic and as a result of political power, and to ask how these two countries, which fought a short but brutal war just 46 years ago, will deal with each other in the process. Now, China and India are the two most populous countries in the world, with India set to overtake China, according to the UN, in 2034, to become number one, at least in one category, at the largest population. They account together for nearly a tenth of global GDP, a fifth of world exports, and a sixth of all international capital flows. China and India are the world's uh, second and fifth largest uh, economies in purchasing power parity terms, uh, though both, uh, of course, um, continue to grow. China holds by far the largest um, foreign currency reserves in the world um, at some $2 trillion. Half of that is held in U.S. paper. So if it pulled its money out of the U.S. Treasury, it could probably in one stroke destroy much of the U.S. economy, which uh, would also involve some considerable cost to itself, so I'm sure it won't do it, but it reflects how much uh, uh, economic power in the world has already changed. We can say with some confidence that India and China will continue to prosper and will pull more millions out of poverty than they've ever done before, that they will compete effectively with Western corporations for business, purchase foreign companies and assets, expand their trade and overseas investments, invent and develop new technologies, and displace more economic weight around the world. And as a result, they will inevitably demand more authority in the international system, and I believe they will acquire it. China will, in my view, be the country that strips the U.S. of its current designation of being the world's sole superpower. I think that adjective is not going to survive another generation. India will not stride the global stage to quite that extent, but it will be a significant player in its own region, and through the attraction of its soft power, it will be hugely influential beyond its borders. Neither will be, nor has it been for some time, a bit player on the world stage. Now, both countries are also currently expanding their hard power. China's military budget has been increasing by staggering 17 to 18 percent each year since 2007. It has launched an unmanned space orbiter and announced a major expansion of its naval and submarine fleets. India is behind, but it's heading broadly in the same direction, expanding its defense and space capabilities. Still, I should stress, both countries together would have a long way to go before they can compete with the U.S., whose defense budget is currently equal to that of the rest of the world put together. Now, according to the experts at Goldman Sachs, China is likely to overtake the United States as the world's largest economy by the late 2020s. Not everyone agrees with that, but that's a forecast that's out there, with India closing in behind them. But let us remember that this would merely be a partial reversion to a historical state of affairs. The economic historian Angus Madison, who I think had something to do with LSE, has told us that back in 1820, China and India together accounted for half of the world's total economic output. India 23% of global GDP, China nearly 27%. And neither is close to those numbers today, and even the most optimistic projections for their rise do not see those two countries jointly accounting for 50% of global GDP any time in the 21st century. So there may be a genuine shift of economic power, but it would not bring these two back to the position that they occupied just two centuries ago. Now I'm going to, to try and um, 
try and uh, skip this a bit because what I really want to do with all of you is to talk uh, in response to what's on your mind. So I'll try and give you a broad outline of, 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 of the themes as I see them, and I'll be very happy to respond in detail to your questions, and we sustain this as long as you're interested. Um, so having just given you these basic figures uh, for, the, for, the, for the rise of India and China, I intend to reflect on two aspects uh, of, uh, of their rise. First, the question of commonalities, competition, complementarities between the two of them, and then, of course, secondly, the risk of conflict. There are many other aspects of the rise of China and India on which I wish I could dilate, but I think the time available uh, obliges me to limit myself, and I hope that we can have a lively exchange in the discussion that follows my remarks. So first, commonalities, complementarities, competition. It's become rather fashionable these days, particularly in bien-pensant circles in the West, to speak of India and China in the same breath. These are the two big countries said to be taking over the world, the new contenders for global eminence after centuries of Western domination, the oriental answer to generations of, of Occidental economic success. Uh, two books have even come out in recent years. I mean, dozens of books have, but two that I particularly would like to mention, explicitly twinning the two countries, are Forbes magazine correspondent Robin Meredith's The Elephant and the Dragon, The Rise of India and China and What It Means for All of Us, and Harvard business professor Tarun Khanna's Billions of Entrepreneurs, How China and India Are Reshaping Their Futures and Yours. And just a few weeks ago, an Indian journalist has written about China and India collectively in a book entitled Superpower, Raghav Behel. Now, these books, though all different in scope and tone, see the recent rise of India and China as literally shifting the world's economic and political tectonic plates. Some even speak of Chindia, as if the two are joined at the hip in the international imagination. Personally, count me amongst the skeptics. It's not just that, aside from the fact that both countries occupy a rather vast landmass called Asia, they have very little in common. It's also that the two countries are already at very different stages of development. China started its liberalization in 1978, a good decade and a half before India, shot up faster, hit double-digit growth when India was still hovering around 5%, and with compound growth has put itself in a totally different league from India, continuing to grow faster from a larger base. And it's also that the two countries' systems are totally dissimilar. If China wants to build a new six-lane expressway, and it does, it went from zero kilometers of six-lane expressways to 66,000 kilometers in one decade. And when my wife and I were in China last uh, October or November, we were told they were going to hit 150,000 kilometers by 2020. Well, when they want to do that, they can draw a line on the map and bulldoze their way past any number of villages in their path. Whereas in India, if you want to widen a two-lane road, you could be tied up in court for a dozen years over compensation entitlements. That is even assuming the people living by the sides of the road are willing to sell their land to you. So that is the, 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 the difference in our systems. When China built the Three Gorges Dam, it created a 600-kilometer-long reservoir that necessitated the displacement of a staggering two million people, all accomplished in 15 years without a fuss in the interest of generating electricity. When India began the Narmada Dam project, aiming to bring irrigation, drinking water, and power to millions, it has spent 35 years so far fighting environmental groups, human rights activists, 
and advocates for the displaced all the way to the Supreme Court while still being thwarted in the streets by the protesters from non-governmental organizations like the Narmada Bachao Andolan, the Save Narmada Movement, and assorted Bollywood stars. <laughs> now, that is how it should be. India is a fractious democracy. China is not. But as an Indian, I do not wish to pretend that we can compete in the global growth stakes with China. In fact, in case anyone wanted confirmation that twinning India with China is, to put it mildly, premature, one has only to look at the medals tally at the Beijing Olympics. <laughs> China proudly ranked first with 51 gold medals and a total of 100 medals. You have to strain your eyes past such stepchildren of the global family as Jamaica, Belarus, war-torn Georgia, collapsing Zimbabwe, and even what used to be called Outer Mongolia, before stumbling across India in 100, sorry, in 50th place, with precisely three medals, one gold and two bronze. Now, this is not, in fact, a surprise. Whereas China has set about systematically striving for Olympic success since it re-entered global competition after years of isolation, India has remained complacent about its lack of sporting prowess. Where China lobbied for and won the right to host the Olympics within two decades of its return to the Olympic Games, India rested on its laurels after hosting the Asian Games in Delhi in 1982 so that it is now considered farther behind in the competition for Olympic hosthood than it was two decades ago. Where China embarked on Project 119, a program devised specifically to boost the country's Olympic medal standings the number 119 refers to the goals awarded at the Sydney Games of 2000 in such medal-laden sports as track and field, swimming, rowing, sailing, and canoeing. Indians wondered if they would be able to crack the magic ceiling of two, <laughs> which was the highest number of medals our country has ever won at this quadrennial exercise in international sporting machismo. Where China, seeing the number of medals awarded in kayaking, decided to create a team to master a sport hitherto unknown in the history of the Middle Kingdom. India has not even lobbied successfully for the inclusion in the games of the few sports it does play well. Kabaddi, for instance. <laughs> or polo. Or cricket, which was played in the Olympics of 1900 and has been omitted since. Does anyone here know who won the gold medal in Olympics in cricket? No, but close. France, that's right. So you can imagine that India would stand a not, a bad, not a bad chance against the holders. Um, <laughs> where China has maintained its dominance in table tennis and badminton and developed new strengths in non-traditional sports like rowing and shooting, and I mentioned kayaking, India has seen its once legendary invincibility in field hockey fade with the introduction of AstroTurf to the point where its team even failed to qualify for the Beijing Olympics in hockey. Forget Chindia, the two countries barely belong in the same sporting sentence. What's happened at the Olympics speaks to a basic difference in the two countries' systems. It's the creative chaos of all singing, all dancing Bollywood versus the perfectly choreographed precision of the Beijing opening ceremony. The Chinese, as befits a communist autocracy, approached the task of dominating the Olympics with top-down military discipline. The objective was determined, a program, Project 119, drawn up, the considerable resources of the state attached to it, state-of-the-art technology acquired, and world-class foreign coaches imported. 
India, by contrast, approached these Olympics as it had every other, with its usual combination of amiable amateurism, bureaucratic ineptitude, half-hearted experiment, and shambolic organization. <laughs> In China, national priorities are established by the government and then funded by the state. In India, priorities emerge from seemingly endless discussions and arguments amongst myriad interests, and funds have to be found where they might. China's budget for preparing its sportspersons for these games alone exceeded India's entire expenditure on all Olympic training in the last 60 years. <laughs> but where China's state-owned enterprises remain the most powerful motors of the country's development, India's private sector, ducking around governmental obstacles and bypassing the stifling patronage of the state, has transformed the fortunes of the Indian people. So it proved again in the Olympics. The wrestlers, boxers, runners, tennis players, and weightlifters who made up the bulk of the Indian contingent, accompanied by the inevitable retinue of officials, returned with just two bronzes amongst them, while India's only gold in shooting was won by a young entrepreneur with a rifle range in his own backyard and no help from the state whatsoever. Young Abhinav Bindra was, at 25, the CEO of a high-tech firm, a self-motivated sharpshooter, with the resources to finance his own equipment and training, and an avid blogger. In short, he was, or is, a 21st century Indian. At one level, it's not surprising that he should have won India's first individual gold in any Olympics since a transplanted Englishman competed in Indian colors in 1900. India is the land of individual excellence despite the limitations of the system. In China, individual success is the product of the system. Certainly in absolute numbers, the Chinese are way ahead. Their export of electronic goods now tops 180 billion a year. One out of every three shoes exported in the world is made in China. I, sh I probably should have said three pairs of shoes. Three shoes are not of much use to two people, right? But anyway, one out of every three pairs of shoes exported in the world is made in India. They make 75% of the world, uh, in China. They make 75% of the world's toys. Foreign direct investment is at the level of $70 billion a year. Uh, way, way, way ahead of, of India. Shanghai alone has nearly 4,000 skyscrapers, more than all of India, and exceeding Los Angeles and Chicago combined. China has built an estimated, as I told you, 66,000 kilometers of expressways in, and will soon outstrip the entire U.S. national highway network. Per capita income has risen nearly tenfold since 1978, to over $6,000 a head, and the number of people living in absolute poverty has dropped from 425 million two decades ago to 26 million today. The population is almost totally literate, life expectancy is reaching developed country levels, and this year, as you know, China overtook Germany to become uh, the world's third or second largest economy, depending on how you calculate your purchasing power parity. If it's third, it won't stay number three for very long. Now, against this, though, are a number of factors suggesting that not everything is rosy in China. Economic growth has occurred at breakneck speed, but that means some necks have been broken. The human cost of development has not been negligible. Population displacement, farmers thrown off their lands, villages flooded by dams, mounting pollution, low-wage labor in appalling conditions, widening disparities between the rich and the poor, an absence of human rights, and few checks on governmental abuses. The Chinese have seen great and rapid improvements in their internet access. The fastest growing language on the internet is Chinese, but Beijing employs some 40,000 cyber police 
to monitor politically undesirable activity on the web and to crack down on it. Equally important, China's success has not just been China's. A disproportionate share of the benefits goes abroad to the foreign companies who set up factories in China. It has been estimated that of the $700 American price of a Chinese-made laptop, only $15 remains in China. Only four of the country's top 25 exporters are Chinese companies, according to Robin Meredith, who adds that in practice, made in China really means made, made by America or Europe in China. The Chinese financial system also leaves much to be desired. Where India has been running sophisticated stock markets since the early 19th century, and Indians are so skilled at doing so that they got the Bombay stock market up and running within 24 hours of the terrorist bomb blasts that nearly destroyed the building in 92, China is new at the game and not particularly adept at it. The financial information provided by China's companies, especially in the large governmental sector, is notoriously unreliable and standards of corporate governance are low. There are no world-class Chinese companies with sophisticated managers to match Tata or Wipro or Infosys from India. Huawei and Lenovo are trying, but they're simply not in the same league yet. China's capital markets are weak and its banks inefficient. The Chinese banking system carries an estimated $911 billion of unrecoverable loans, mainly to government firms. In his uh, recent book, Capitalism with Chinese Characteristics, Professor Yasheng Huang of MIT argues that the Indian private sector is more efficient and entrepreneurial than the Chinese private sector. State-owned enterprises still account for half of China's economic assets. China has yet to master the art of channeling domestic savings into productive investments, which is why it has relied so extensively on foreign direct investment. India, on the other hand, is exporting FDI to OECD countries. That I've read somewhere that India is the world's number one exporter of FDI as a proportion of GDP, which is quite an extraordinary statistic. In other words, India's entrepreneurial capital and management skills are better able than China's to control and manage assets in the sophisticated financial markets of the developed West. And the world has yet to develop any confidence in China's legal system, where a contract still means whatever the government says it means. In other words, it still lags behind India in the software of development, not just technical brainpower or engineering know-how, but the systems it needs to operate a 21st century economy in an open and globalizing world. The Chinese state is undoubtedly stronger and more efficient than the Indian, as the Olympics have taught us. But the Indian private sector is not only miles ahead, it is compensating for the inadequacies of the Indian state whereas in China, the state sector can still stifle the private, and both sides know it. And then there's politics. Whatever you may say about India's sclerotic bureaucracy versus China's efficient one, India's tangles of red tape versus China's unfurled red carpet to foreign investors, India's contentious and fractious political parties versus China's smoothly functioning top-down communist hierarchy there's one thing you've got to grant. India has become an outstanding example of the management of diversity through pluralist democracy. Every Indian has been allowed to feel that he or she has as much of a stake in the country and as much of a chance to run it as anyone else. After all, in our last but one elections in 2004, the elections were won by a woman of Italian descent and Roman Catholic heritage who made her 
who made way for a Sikh to be sworn in as Prime Minister by a Muslim President in a nation 81% Hindu. And our largest state, Uttar Pradesh, is being ruled by a Dalit woman from a community once considered untouchable, whose caste and gender would have made her power unthinkable for 3,000 years before democracy made it possible. She wasn't promoted by the Brahmin elite in New Delhi. She rode to the top on the ballots of her political base, building her own rainbow coalition along the way. Contrast this with Beijing, where, the political, where political freedom is unknown. Leaders at all levels are handpicked from the top for their posts, and political heresy is met with swift punishment, house arrest, or worse. In fact, during the Olympics, under international pressure, China designated a few areas where protesters could, in theory, peacefully gather. But you had to apply for permission to protest, <laughs> which was never granted. And most of those who applied for permission were arrested and detained, <laughs> which meant that the authorization of protest became an excellent method for the security police to identify potential troublemakers without having to actually look for them. So you apply for a permit to protest, aha, you're going to make trouble. <laughs> India's politics means that its shock absorbers are built into the system. It has endured major road bumps without the vehicle ever breaking down. It's sort of a, a rattling old ambassador car going through pothole after pothole, but we keep going. Whereas the China's is a smooth limousine of state going along in cruise control on a six-lane expressway, but it's far from clear what would happen if the limousine of state actually encountered a serious pothole. The axle might drop off because the present system wasn't designed to cope with fundamental challenges to it except through repression. But every autocratic state in history has come to a point where repression is no longer enough. If and when that point is reached in China, all bets are off. The dragon could stumble where the elephant can always trundle on. But Indians can't afford to be complacent. Our problems are enormous, and there is still a great deal we need to do internally. Our teeming cities overflow, while two out of three Indians still scratch a living from the soil. We have been recognized for all practical purposes as a leading nuclear power, but 600 million Indians still have no access to electricity, and there are daily power cuts even in the nation's capital. Ours is a culture which elevated nonviolence to an effective moral principle, but our freedom was born in blood, and our independence still soaks in it. We are the world's leading manufacturers of generic medication for illnesses such as AIDS, but we have three million of our own citizens without access to AIDS medication, another two million with TB, and tens of millions with no health center or clinic within 10 kilometers of their places of residence. India holds the world record for the number of cell phones sold, a story I like to tell, and if you ask me in the q and I'll gladly tell it again, but I can't bear to inflict it on my wife once more. She's heard it too often. Uh, but India also holds the world record for the number of farmers' suicides, an estimated 17,000 last year, because when crops fail, farmers faced with a crippling mountain of debt see no other way out for their families than to take their own lives. So we must ensure that we do enough to keep our people healthy, well-fed, and secure. Secure not just from the jihadi terrorism that affects us, but not China. And it's a real threat. But from the daily terrorism, the daily terror of poverty, hunger, and ill health. Progress is being made. We can take satisfaction from India's success in carrying out three kinds of revolutions in feeding our people. The green revolution in food grains, the white revolution in milk production, 
and at least to some degree a blue revolution in the development of our fisheries. But the benefits of these revolutions have not yet reached the large section of our population still living below the poverty line, a poverty line drawn barely this side of the funeral pyre. And we have to do that before we can meaningly speak of ourselves in competition with China. So we can't compete, can we cooperate? Now the basic task for countries like China and India in international affairs, in my view, is to wield a foreign policy that enables and facilitates their own domestic transformations. By this as an Indian I mean that my country's engagement with the world must make possible the transformation of India's economy and society while promoting our own national values of pluralism, democracy, social justice and secularism. What I expect from my national leaders is that they work for a global environment that is supportive of these internal priorities, an environment that would permit us to concentrate on our domestic growth and our domestic tasks. China and India are both engaged in the great adventure of bringing progress and prosperity to a billion people each through a major economic transformation. At the broadest level, therefore, our international relations must seek to protect that process of transformation to ensure security for our countries and bring in global support for our efforts to build and change our countries for the better. India and China have inevitably been directly affected by the global trends of the post-Cold War era. On the one hand, we are both far more globalized economies than most, and more so than we ever were, speaking for India, in the days when we raised the protectionist barriers to shield us as we developed our autonomous national capabilities. We are today more connected through trade and travel, much more than ever before with the international system. And trade and foreign investment accounts for a steadily increasing share of our GDP, China's much more than India's. Today we can admit that our links with the world are one of the reasons for the highest ever growth rates that our countries have enjoyed. Our two civilizations had centuries of contact in ancient times, thanks mainly to the export of Buddhism from India to China, Chinese travelers came to Indian universities, visited Indian courts, and wrote memorable accounts of their voyages. Nalanda University, which flourished in northern India for seven centuries from 427 AD, way before Oxford or Cambridge or even LSE was a gleam in anyone's eye, and attracted students from across Asia. There were students from China, Korea, Japan, traveling to India to study at Nalanda University. Uh, a few Indians also went the other way. In fact, my wife and I had the great pleasure of visiting the famous Ling Si Temple in Hangzhou, established by a Buddhist monk from India in 326 AD. The great Chinese admiral Zhang He, I'm not pronouncing it correctly, I'm sure, Z-H-E-N-G-H-E, visited India less than a century later, and on his way in 410 AD, he erected a tablet in Sri Lanka written in Chinese, Persian, and Tamil, calling on the Hindu deities to bless a world of free trade. Kerala's coastline is dotted with Chinese fishing nets, and the favorite cooking pot of the Malayali housewife is the wok, locally called the chin chetti, or the Chinese vessel. It's been a while, though, since Indians and Chinese had much to do with each other. The heady days of Hindi, Chini, Bhai, Bhai, Indians and Chinese are brothers, the slogan coined by Nehruvian India to welcome Zhou Enlai in 1955 gave way, as we all know, to Hindi Chini bye bye, <laughs> uh, a much more difficult period in our relationship. And yet there has been some good news. Trade has increased 12 fold in the last decade.
to an estimated 51 billion last year. China has now overtaken the US as India's single largest trading partner. If you discount our trade and services in manufactured goods, China is now our number one partner. And by the way, the figure um, is now expected by the two governments to cross the 60 billion mark when this fiscal year numbers are in. And that figure is 230 times the total trade between the two countries in 1990, just 20 years ago. Beijing has already spoken of aiming for 70 billion the following year. There are some 7,000 Indian students in China. Tourism, particularly of Indian pilgrims to the major Hindu holy sites in Tibet, Mount Kailash and, uh, Kailash and, and Lake Mansarovar, is thriving. Indian information technology firms have opened offices in Shanghai and Hangzhou. Our Consul General, uh, whom I saw when my wife and I were there just a few months ago, tells us there are many more companies and ventures active in the two countries than ever before. There are dozens of Chinese engineers working in and learning from Indian computer firms and engineering companies from Gurgaon to Bangalore. And Indian software engineers in those and other cities support uh, Chinese telecoms equipment manufacturer Huawei. India, in other words, has become a major market for Chinese engineering and construction project exports and a vital source of raw materials from iron ore to chemicals. See, by and large, India is good at things that China needs to improve at, notably software. China excels at hardware and manufacturing, which India sorely lacks. You have a software economy in India dealing with a hardware economy in China, a manufacturing economy in China dealing with a services economy in India. But the complementarities are very interesting. India's Mahindra and Mahindra manufactures tractors in Nanchang for export to the United States. So you have an Indian design, a Chinese factory, and an American buyer. The key operating components of Apple's iPod, I don't know how many of you knew this, were actually invented in India by the Hyderabad company Portal Player. But the iPods themselves are manufactured in China and sold initially in America. Philips employs nearly 3,000 Indians at its innovation campus in Bangalore who writes more than 20% of Philips global software, which in turn goes to Philips' 50,000 strong workforce in China to turn into brand name goods. In other words, the elephant is already dancing with the dragon. <laughs> there is no doubt that cooperation is in the best interests of the peoples of both India and China. The two countries have um, complementarities that could make such cooperation mutually beneficial. As I've mentioned already, Indian investments in China are now nearing the billion dollar mark, and Chinese investments in India could certainly go up considerably following the conclusion of a China-India agreement on bilateral investment protection and promotion during President Hu Jintao's visit to Delhi. The trade imbalance is about two-thirds in favor of China, that 51 billion, it's 34 billion Chinese exports to India, 17 billion the other way. But this can be addressed if China takes steps to reduce the non-tariff barriers for entry into its market that have been thwarting Indian companies. One evident area for future cooperation is the multilateral institutions and arrangements. It's in dealing with issues of the global commons I could argue that China's and India's interests would converge. Um, the, but the problem still remains the bitter border dispute between the two countries, unresolved since the war of 1962, with periodic reports of incursions by Chinese troops um, onto Indian soil, and new irritants over the anti-Chinese protests of Tibetan exiles who have been given asylum in India. To speak of a trust deficit between the two countries is arguably an understatement. 
Now, while the political leaders on both sides have been talking very much about cooperation rather than competition, and quite recently, a couple of months ago, Premier Wen Jiabao came to Delhi in, this, in fact, December, I think it was, and spoke enthusiastically about commercial and economic exchanges and the enormous potential for increased business ties, we still have to see progress on the political side as well before the cooperation becomes totally real. Uh, the fact is that, um, the fact is that uh, uh, there are, uh, in this dance between the elephant and the dragon, a real risk that political tensions could bring the music screeching to a halt. And that is something which, uh, which we, we do need to confront before I wrap up for today. Now, as Indians painfully remember, we went to war in 1962, a decisive triumph for China, which wrested 23,200 square kilometers of Indian territory. At the same time, Beijing has taken pains in recent months to remind India that it still claims a further 92,000 square kilometers, mainly in the northeastern Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh. It doesn't help that the two countries share the longest disputed frontier in the world, since the line of actual control, the LAC, has never been formally delineated in a manner accepted by both sides. India's borders were defined by British imperial administrators in the 1913 McMahon Line, which China rejects, though it accepts that line as its frontier with Burma, which in those days was part of British India. With the LAC coming into being in the wake of China's military success in 1962, the situation is even more unclear. Whenever troops from either side build roads, construct or repair their bunkers and other routine fortifications, or conduct patrols close to the LAC, tensions can and repeatedly do flare up. When the two sides are anxious to avoid provoking each other, such activities are kept to a minimum. But it seems certainly in 2008 and 2009 that Beijing had taken a conscious decision to keep the Indians on their toes. Why do I say that? Because those two years witnessed a proliferation of incidents along the 4,057-kilometer, 2,520-mile frontier between the two Asian giants. Nearly 200 such incidents were recorded, including no fewer than 95 incursions by the People's Liberation Army in just one sector alone, the evocatively named Finger Area, a 2.1-square-kilometer salient in the Indian state of Sikkim, which shares a 206-kilometer border with Tibet. Reports of intrusions into Indian territory included one in which Chinese soldiers entered 15 kilometers into Ladakh and actually burned the Indian patrolling base. While Indian spokesmen are anxious to downplay such reports, and certainly fewer incidents were made public last year, they serve to remind us that the border dispute remains unresolved. Intensified Chinese patrolling has been observed both in Ladakh and in the border areas of Arunachal Pradesh, while Chinese notables, including their last two ambassadors in New Delhi, have publicly laid claim to that state as their territory. Uh, China having established four new air bases in Tibet and three in its southern provinces bordering India, the Indian Air Force is reportedly augmenting its own presence near the Chinese border by deploying two squadrons of Sukhoi-30 fighters. Are the two countries bracing for war? What on earth is going on, you might well ask. Well, fears of any imminent major hostilities are clearly overblown. China, flush from the huge public relations success of the Olympics and rejoicing in a huge trade imbalance in its favor with India, is hardly likely to initiate a clash, and India has no desire whatsoever to provoke its northern neighbor. But it's clear that what's motivating China very simply 
is its troubles in Tibet. Many of you may remember the year of the Olympics, that there were huge demonstrations and clashes in Tibet at that time. And whereas India was actually quite silent on the matter, uh, it was a reminder to the Chinese that India plays host to the Dalai Lama and to over 110,000 Tibetan refugees who have moved to India since 1959. India has been cultivating relations with China and has, has refused to recognize the Dalai Lama as a political leader. It says it respects the Dalai Lama only as a spiritual leader. But nonetheless, uh, there are Tibetan demonstrations whenever Chinese leaders come to visit. And uh, we've, had, uh, we've had a few um, uh, incidents in which India has uh, apparently uh, irritated the Chinese by permitting the free expression of political views on our territory, which, as you can imagine, in a, in a democracy is par for the course, but um, somewhat difficult for the Chinese to, to accept. Uh, and while, um, while India is conscious that the Chinese are easily offended and uh, therefore careful not to offer gratuitous provocations, nonetheless, we cannot accept the Chinese telling us that our Prime Minister has no business to visit Arunachal Pradesh to campaign in state elections there where Indian citizens are voting for Indian parties. Uh, and, and at the same time, uh, when the Dalai Lama wanted to visit their Arunachal Pradesh, the Chinese objected vociferously, and India had no choice but to let the visit go ahead, though it urged him to be restrained in the statements he was to make. This sort of delicate dance has been going on for some time, but the fact is that Tawang in Arunachal Pradesh, close to the border, is the birthplace of the sixth Dalai Lama, that's seven Dalai Lamas ago, and is a major monastery of Tibetan Buddhism. So the fact that that territory, that bit of Indian territory incorporates the Wang, deprives Beijing of a vital asset in its attempts to assert total control over Tibet. Beijing almost certainly hopes that the eventual passing of the current Dalai Lama will permit it to identify a suitable young boy, kidnap him, take him off to Beijing and indoctrinate him for a while, thereby presenting a Dalai Lama to the world who's perfectly acceptable to Beijing. That's what it's done with the Panchen Lamas. I'm not saying something that, that uh, off the top of my head, there is a precedent for it. But the Dalai Lama has announced that the next one may not be born in Chinese-controlled Tibet. The suggestion is that he could easily emerge either from the Tibetan diaspora or from some areas of Tibetan residents that are now in Indian territory, and obviously the Tawang tract is rather obviously uh, the, 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 the most likely place from which a potential future Dalai Lama could be identified. Reminding New Delhi of China's claims over that territory is therefore all the more urgent for Beijing. China wants to take control of Tawang before it's too late. Behind the unpleasantness may, lay a broader, may lie a broader strategic calculation. With the end of the Cold War, Beijing had two options in relation to India to see the country as sort of a natural ally together with Russia in building up an alternative pole to US dominance in the region. The other option was to identify it as a potential adversary to its own aspirations for such a role. The emergence of a stronger US-Indian partnership in recent years appears to have convinced China to place New Delhi in the latter category, even as an instrument for the containment of China, a role that India has never showed any taste for playing. Um, obviously, India has had military exercises with the U.S., with Japan, with Australia, with Singapore, and so on, and this has got the Chinese concerned. But at the same time, um, India has been attempting to, um, to put it bluntly, to appease Chinese concerns uh, in, in the region uh, by, how can I put it, uh, 
establishing strategic ties with countries that Beijing sees as falling within its own sphere of influence, but by doing so without any overt threat uh, to China. Um, indeed, uh, that cuts both ways because India's influence, I'm sorry, India's refusal to, um, to condemn uh, the Myanmar junta's crackdown on monks in mid-2007 was clearly directly linked to competition with China for influence in that country, for strategic assets there and oil and gas, uh, because its earlier policy of support for Burma and Burma's democratic forces had simply allowed China and its ally Pakistan to steal a march on India. So some of this uh, strategic competition is real. Now, there are various other factors that, that, that uh, uh, can point to competition. I'll, I'll skim them very quickly. Uh, the Indo-US nuclear deal that China is not very happy about. China's support for Pakistan, which India is not very happy about. Uh, India's inclusion in the East Asian summit, which was pushed by Japan, Singapore, and Indonesia, primarily to limit China's influence in intergovernmental Asian institutions the two countries' competition for scarce energy resources and investment opportunities in markets abroad, such as Africa, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, Latin America. I'll be quite happy to go into detail on that in the Q&A. And, of course, the ongoing discussions about reform of the Security Council, with China being distinctly unenthusiastic about the prospects of India and Japan uh, getting uh, a seat uh, uh, of a permanent nature in other words, of diluting the status China has as the sole Asian permanent member. So there is reason for the usually complacent elephant to be wary of the hissing dragon. And the frontier, as I said, has not been entirely quiet. Needling and anxious to please New Delhi on its troubled northern borders helps China to keep India guessing about its intentions. It exposes the giant democracy's vulnerabilities uh, at a time when any Indian government is constantly subject to the referendum process of ongoing elections. Every politician in a democracy rarely thinks beyond the next election. But in India, thanks to our federal system, the next election is always less than six months away because there's some state or the other going to the polls and a backlash to any political decision, domestic or international, could be as, as soon as coming as a few months away rather than the five-year window that an elected government would normally hope to have. Now, those are my um, incomplete reflections on the rise of China and India. But I don't want to leave you on, that, on a pessimistic note. Though I've laid out rather a lot of both good and bad news, I think no serious decision maker in either Beijing or New Delhi wants the bad news to prevail. In his book, uh, Rivals, the British journalist Bill Emmett quoted an unnamed senior Indian official, this is about four years ago, five years ago, as saying, both of us, India and China, think that the future belongs to us. We can't both be right, unquote. I disagree. Actually, they can both be right. It's just that it will be two very different futures, and there can be room for both in the world of tomorrow. Thank you very much. I'm afraid I've taken rather longer than I intended to, but uh, discovered I had overprepared, which I'm sure is something your students are always guilty of as well, right? Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> but I'll be happy to take questions, comments, brick bats. Questions in ones or twos? Ones will be quicker, I think. Um, yeah, so if you could just keep your questions fairly short, say who you are, and if you've got anybody that wants to speak on the Chinese side of things, I will try and call you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Microphone. Thank you, Dr.
questions. Thank you. On the first one, you're right that the one-child policy has produced a generation without siblings, uh, but in a paradoxical way, while fraternity may have suffered, responsibility has actually increased because this poor one child is soon going to be supporting four grandparents, uh, and that is going to teach, uh, teach them a lot of, lot of what they can do and what they can't do. Uh, in fact, the whole demographic pattern of India and China is fascinating because India as you know, 65% of, of the Indian population is under 35. And that means for the next 30 years, we should have a youthful, productive, dynamic, working population at a time when China is aging. But the truth is that that only works if we have the capacity to grow our economy to absorb all these people and to provide enough education and training so they're employable in that economy. And right now, those are areas in which we are faltering. So we may have a different set of challenges from China's. But either way, uh, the worst thing that you can see around the world, you can see it in the Arab world today as well, is the frustrations of unemployed young men. So large numbers of unemployed young men would actually be worse than large numbers of harassed, siblingless <laughs> young people trying to support their grandparents. On the Chaltahai attitude, the truth is yes, India, uh, India's resilience, our ability to take knocks on the chin repeatedly and, and stand up and go on, is part of the reason why perhaps we don't always strive to avoid those knocks on the chin. We, you know, we've been rightly, in, in some people's views, been called a soft state uh, because we haven't exercised much hard power or hard muscle. But the truth is that a soft state would be beaten down far more easily than India has ever been. Everything from, as you said, floods to terrorist attacks. The Bombay Stock Exchange, I mentioned that, was destroyed almost in the bomb blast of 92, and within 24 hours, we're up and running again. That sort of capacity uh, gives us uh, uh, the feeling that nothing, ultimately, not even 2611 in 2008, could destroy us. We will pick up and keep going. If that breeds complacency, which it probably does in some, uh, that may be part of the price we have to pay. But I wouldn't want to trade that resilience for, for um, a greater unwillingness to accept the blows, because that, that is one of our great strengths as a society and as a culture. And I think we can, we, we can certainly do better in other ways, but we shouldn't lose that capacity for resilience. Hi, my name is Shimantra Das. I'm from Delhi. Um, my question is, uh, do, you think, do you think that uh, China and India just take different approaches to economics and politics? Because um, evidence suggests that China's approaching a more um, regional hegemonic attitude 
with the South China Sea, I'm sure what you're aware of. And uh, India is focusing more on civil, civil societies, um, domestic market growth. Uh, and perhaps when these two countries collide in their policies, um, economic policies would be competition. I guess environmental policy would be sort of the cooperation where they're going with the Kyoto Protocol and conflict could be like territories. Do you think um, that they have different approaches, fundamentally different approaches towards what they want to achieve? Um, I mean, just wondering your the opinion. The approaches are different, Jamanda, but they're not incompatible. And you mentioned the South China Sea, which is, of course, China's backyard. But if you look at the Indian Ocean, there's an area where actually India and China could actually cooperate because the interest in keeping the sea lanes of communication open is paramount for India because we get 70% of our energy resources and most of our trade across the waters of the Indian Ocean. But it's equally important for China because of most of what they get, I don't know the exact percentage, but a considerable chunk and possibly a majority of their resources also comes across the Indian Ocean, goes beyond India, of course, through the states of Malacca and into the South China Sea, uh, but they would actually gain enormously from having a cooperative relationship with the Indian Navy in the Indian Ocean rather than seeking to compete uh, in a way that kind of could end up you know, narrowing the straits, as it were, for both of them. So I think that there is scope for cooperation even in those areas, and I don't necessarily see a conflict over territories. Uh, China will also learn, I think, from the backlash to its throwing its weight around in its immediate backyard. I think you're referring to the incident of the, the Japanese uh, arrest of the Chinese stroller captain and the backlash that followed. That sort of incident has been a similar one with, with South Korea. We will have to, I think, watch out uh, for how belligerent China gets. There is a rampant nationalism on the march in China. But my feeling is that because their principal priority has been and remains their own economic growth, uh, they are as much focused on that as anything else. And if they find that being unpleasant to their neighbors will impede their economic growth, I suspect they will adjust their policies to come back to focus on what really matters. Nice to see you again, this time in London. I'm Bramley, I'm from uh, Shillong, Northeast India. My question, Shashi, is China's investing heavily in Africa because there are not enough resources in China to feed Chinese people. You go to, I was in Burundi and Rwanda and Congo, and the Chinese, uh, well, the Chinese, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, and Indian troops are patrolling on the UN command. But wherever roads need to be built, you have Chinese people. They bring everything with ships from China. It's only the water they use from Africa, but everything comes from China. But they're doing that all over Africa. I think half of Africa is under China now. But what is India doing in Africa as compared to what the Chinese are doing there? Because that's the forgotten continent. Thank you. Thank you, Brimley. Good to, hear, good to see you again, and thank you for your question. No, the fact is that um, China is indeed very active in Africa, and so is India in a very different way. Um, the principal differences are first that we've been involved longer. We've, we've uh, been supporters of African decolonization from the very beginning, and we've been present, therefore, in African countries from the beginning. Uh, on the other side of the, of the ledger, the Chinese have far more resources to devote to Africa than we do, and their involvement in Africa, even in terms of trade alone, is something like 70 to 80 billion dollars a year, whereas India's is barely 25 to 30 billion dollars a year. So there's a huge difference. Uh, their investment in Africa is, is greater in dollar terms, and they have been able to move in 
with larger sums of money available to dispense as grants, whereas a lot of India's contribution is in the terms of soft loans. We give some grants, but we tend instead to give soft loans at jokey rates of interest, 0.75% and so on, but we still expect to be paid back, and we tie our loans to the purchase. At least 80% of those loans are to be spent on buying Indian goods and services. Having said that, the Chinese approach, um, while it may seem to have spread completely over Africa, has generated a fair amount of problems for China. Uh, one of which is that uh, there is an increasing backlash about the way China goes about things. It comes in with a large footprint, a governmental footprint. Uh, it often, putting it bluntly, buys up entire governments and presidencies and ministries uh, with lavish um, and not always legal disbursements of funds. Uh, it brings in, as you said, Chinese uh, in large numbers for everything. Uh, even roads are often built by Chinese prison labor who are not being paid a penny to do that work, which is why sometimes the Chinese can afford to do it. Um, and uh, the Chinese in Africa tend to live in little communities of their own, or little ghettos of their own, and not mix with the local population. Uh, the backlash this has generated has actually gone very far. For example, in Zambia, a presidential candidate uh, ran on the uh, specific one-issue agenda of being anti-China and wanted to kick the Chinese out of Zambia, and he won over 20% of the vote. So you've never seen anything remotely like that about the Indian presence since Idi Amin expelled Indians from Uganda in 72. In fact, the Ugandans have asked the Indians to come back, largely because even at the governmental level, India tends to go in and say to Africa, what would you like? What would you need? Let me see if we can help. I was minister responsible for Africa, so I'm telling you what I actually did. Equally, we facilitate our private sector going in. Uh, we don't have to go in with a big governmental presence. In fact, we encourage Indian private companies. When I went as minister, I was often accompanied by business delegations from India. These business people then look at opportunities in the private sector sort of way. They want to cooperate. They want to be welcomed. They hire local labor. Indian companies invariably hire African labor in Africa. They have senior managers and others living there, but they live amongst the local communities and mix with the local people. And there's been no example of the kind of backlash against India uh, that you've seen against China in many African countries. On top of that, you've got the fact that there is a, a real difference in the models we both represent. Many African leaders look at China with a certain amount of admiration, of course, but also with awe. None of them ever believes they're ever going to become uh, a China economically. But they look at India with the sense of something familiar. We seem to be a country that has faced, or is still facing in some ways, the kinds of problems that many African countries are facing. And our success in overcoming some of them actually is inspiring to African leaders. They say, if India can do it, maybe, they, we, maybe we can too, and they can help us to do it. So that gives you a totally different attitude. I've also met many African prime ministers and presidents and foreign ministers who've told me how much they used to look forward to watching the local Bollywood movie when it came to the nearest town when they were growing up in various parts of Africa. There's no equivalent Chinese experience uh, in their imaginations. So there's a lot going for India and Africa. We'd be foolish to discount it. Though I agree with you that our presence is not so overt, not so visible, and certainly not so um, in your face, as it were, as the Chinese. Uh, the truth is we do have a significant contribution in our own way we continue to make it. Good evening, Dr. Tharoor. Uh, I'm Saur from Department of Management. Uh, one thing is like, what, how, do you think China is worried about India? Like, we, whenever we speak on international platform, 
uh, our, we, our main area is like comparing India and China. Do you think China is at all bothered about India coming and taking Chinese place? Uh, when Raghav Bell was there, when he launched his book, uh, he compared in the statement that India and China are like hare and turtle. So the China is a hare, India is a turtle, and one Chinese dude, he got offensive, and he got up and he said, uh, we are China, we consider China's elephant and India's ant. Hmm. So, what is your take on that? And second, uh, second question is one question, one question. Yeah, when you talk of uh, no, it's, it's just specifically for Mr. Tharoor. When you talk about freedom of expression, when you talk about freedom of expression in Chinese media, like you know, you in India, when you update your Twitter, you have to answer a lot of questions. Your cattle class statement, it was a big controversy. So, still, like in your position, do you have? To, before updating your Twitter account, you have to think that you shouldn't cross, cross the borderline. That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my freedom of expression is severely circumscribed, yes. Um, now, on the, on the first point, frankly, uh, I don't think it's possible to generalize. I think there are. Uh, there are a number of Chinese who think about India, focus on India, and are concerned about India. Uh, I don't think any of them sees India as a threat. I don't think anyone expects that India... Uh, can be either economically, politically, or militarily a threat to China. But I think there are some people who have uh, not previously thought about India as an opportunity, and they're beginning to think about that. And I think there is, therefore, some prospects at the highest levels. As I said, the Hu Jintao and Jiaba levels, we're hearing the right sort of reflection and language. But for the vast majority of the Chinese people, my impression is that they are either ignorant or indifferent about India. I don't think there are too many who... Uh, are necessarily offensive about it, but if you had somebody here, good for him. I mean, we need to occasionally be provoked, as you know, to get going. On freedom of expression, I think there's still a huge difference. Yes, in India, our media is irreverent, it's free, it's irresponsible, and, uh, and it, loves, it loves stirring up controversies because controversies sell newspapers and raise the TRPs of TV channels. And in China, such things are not possible. Uh, whenever outrageous things are said in Chinese media, you can be sure they've been first cleared by an appropriate governmental authority. Otherwise, in any case, one of the 40,000 cyber police in China would actually uh, shut them down. So you can be sure that, um, that uh, there is a huge difference there, even if once in a while, yes, you have to be careful, even in democracies, as to what you might say, because it can be so willfully distorted. And that's a lesson I've learned the hard way. <laughs> Hi. Well, the West has already facilitated the growth of China. I mean, China could not have grown to where it is now without a huge amount of Western investment, huge. Uh, and so very clearly, the West has been complicit in the, in the rise of China to a position where I think, as I said earlier, it will strip the U.S. of that adjective soul, when we speak of soul superpower. Uh, as to India, I think, you know, again, there are issues of systems. The Chinese have been far more welcoming of Western investment on terms that are attractive to Western capitalists, then India is, as a democracy, we do have a number of uh, uh, constraints, including laws and regulations that are not always, not always as friendly to foreign investment as the Chinese laws are. And certainly, uh, China, China as a communist autocracy 
has been able to guarantee a quiescent labor force, no right to unionize, no freedom of, uh, of association, whereas in India we can't do that. We are a land of, of political freedoms, and if, if Westerners want to come and invest in India, they would have to do so uh, with uh, labor forces that can organize themselves in unions, that could go on strike and all of that. Now, that will be a bit of a break on their willingness, uh, I'm sure, to come in an investment and invest. But nonetheless, investments both in our equity markets and in direct uh, uh, projects in India have actually been going up steadily over the years. And um, I think uh, as recently as five or six years ago, we were getting two billion to China's 45, then we were getting 15 to China's 60 plus. Now, uh, last year we got almost 48 to China's uh, 70 plus. Uh, though it's dropping again currently because of concerns about inflation and corruption and price rises of various sorts. But the truth is that there is certainly more interest on the part of Western companies and countries to invest in India than there ever used to be. Whether it's driven by a desire to build up, a, as you said, a subsidiary power, I don't agree. I think most companies make decisions for their bottom lines. They do it because they think they can give shareholders a better return by manufacturing a product in India than in um, Indiana. That's about it. Studying it? Hmm. I never thought of the Chinese as particularly good at that, but who knows? I'm sure here you've heard Chinese and you've heard Indians and you think they're better. I will take, I will take a bow and... Well, that's the sort of question where the perception is more important than my answer. If you perceive there is a problem, then there is a problem, and we haven't done it well enough for you to, 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 to feel otherwise. But, you know, India is a large and complicated place, and I suspect that for every politician who doesn't do a good job of representing India abroad, you'll find a politician who does. So perhaps we can, we can balance it. I, I have actually never thought the Chinese were particularly gifted at conveying their good qualities to the outside world. So the fact that you think so... Uh, <laughs> Suggest that they're doing a better job than I realize. Thank you. I think there's a very good high commission here. Mm-hmm. Um, good evening, Dr. Tarur. Thank you for getting into Indian politics. Uh, you've shown us the way, um, shown the way for a lot of us. Thank you. That um, accomplished uh, people like you do take care to get back into the system and try and make it better. Uh, my question is, in terms of global climate change, should India and China cooperate? Because certain developed countries uh, have um, sort of had excessive levels of pollution to a great extent in the age of innocence. But now that you know, they have reached a certain stage, should not the developing countries be given a chance to compete on the same scale? Or if not, should they compensate us for um, what they have done in the past? Thank you. That's a fair question, and I think we, we, we do need to understand that, that to a very great extent um, the, the problems of, of greenhouse gas emissions and global warming have principally been caused by 
200 years of Western industrialization. And China and India are not entirely unreasonable in saying that uh, you've essentially brought us to this point, and now you want to punish us uh, when we're trying to pull our people out of poverty. But having said that, you know, it's difficult to sustain that argument beyond the point because, after all, uh, you can't fence off your climate. Whatever you do today in China or India contributes to the overall global levels. And uh, since there is now a greater consciousness of the dangers of environmental pollution to the planet, uh, we can't escape our share of the responsibility for it. I might add that very often the victims are our own people. I mean, India is losing about 1% of its GDP every year just to illnesses caused by things like air pollution, water pollution, toxins uh, in, our, in, our, in our water and our food supply, respiratory illnesses caused by that, and so on. So it's our own Indians who are choking and sputtering as we breathe our Indian air. So we all have an interest in fixing that. I'm at the same time wary of lumping India and China together because uh, to give you some very basic figures, China with 17.5% of the world's population generates about 18 to 19% of the world's uh, pollutants. Whereas India, with uh, about 17% of the world's population, uh, manages to actually produce less than 4%. So it's not as if we are in the same league as China. They're actually uh, contributing hugely to today's problems. India's contribution in per capita terms is much, much more modest. Of course, the US, with 5% of the world's population, is producing 25 or 26% of the world's effluent, so that's another problem. But, but the fact is that in these circumstances, you can accept that, um, that we shouldn't be lumped together directly with China. We may have a common argument to make as developing countries, precisely along the lines you mentioned, that there should be more acceptance of relative and differentiated responsibility for the present problem. Secondly, that there should be some transfer of, of resources and capital from the West to developing countries. And third, though you didn't mention it, I think, transfer of technology as well. There are green technologies being created, which uh, in many ways the West has so far not been willing to transfer at cost or at subsidized cost to developing countries. And if they did that, they would help solve the entire world's problems. There, India and China could take a common stand. Thank you for coming to talk to us today, Dr. Thru. I'm Umar. I'm a law student here at LSE. Uh, my, question, my question relates to something you've briefly touched upon. Um, but it's, under, it's reasonable to say that Pakistan and China have an excellent relationship. And it's also similarly reasonable to say that India and Pakistan have a somewhat antagonistic relationship. So how do you... S <laughs> Very reasonable to say. <laughs> so how do you see Pakistan's relationship with China affecting India's relationship, A, with China, and consequently with Pakistan as well? Sure. Well, first of all, of course, it was a very conscious choice of Pakistan because initially in the 50s, China was, uh, Pakistan was a member of CETO and CENTO, the two American alliances created to mirror NATO in our region, and whose specific objective was the containment of China and the Soviet Union. So Pakistan was actually part of an anti-Chinese, anti-communist strategy until China's war with India in 62 suggested to Pakistan the, the, the wisdom of the old Chanakyan dictum that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or in this case should be my friend. So Pakistan then went out of its way to change its China policy uh, and, and cultivated China as a potential ally against India since China had already gone to war with India once. 
Um, the matters, of course, then came to a head when the U.S. itself began changing its policies and saw Pakistan as a very useful conduit to the opening with China, Kissinger physically traveling through Pakistan to get to China and, and, and President Nixon's visit to China that followed, all of which cemented the usefulness to the U.S. of Pakistan's links with China. To this day, uh, these relationships have remained central for Pakistan. Pakistan's uh, biggest uh, patron and protector uh, on international activities has been China, uh, and its biggest financier, uh, particularly militarily, has been the United States, and they've all made common cause uh, in, 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 in the Pakistani region. How does that affect India? Well, India is, has been affected, obviously, by uh, the export to it of terrorism from Pakistan. And that has been, a, 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 unfortunately, a systematic instrument of state policy by significant elements of the Pakistani state for over two decades. And this has been a real issue for India to cope with. It's fair to say that neither the U.S. nor China would like to condone that or see it happening. But I think uh, it's not unreasonable for India to suspect that China is not entirely happy that continued tension with Pakistan keeps India bottled up as it were, in the subcontinent, and not able to uh, exceed, as it were, its, the limited capacities it has for exercising influence beyond its region. So to that degree, Pakistan can be served, seen as serving a useful uh, purpose for China in terms of a containment of India from Beijing's point of view. Um, beyond that, I don't see very much else, and I think that India's insistence that its relations with each of these countries has to be seen differently and conducted uh, differently is not also uh, entirely unreasonable, even though it would be foolish of us to be unconscious of the influence of the one on the other. Thank you, Dr. Thur, for your wonderful speech. Um, my question was about that. It's all good and well to joke about, you know, the what your nation lacks. But um, what I wanted to ask was that, um, as students who are living outside our country of origin, um, what's your advice to us um, to take a more to have more active involvement in the development of our countries. And by that, I don't mean um, earning a living over here and sending money back home. <laughs> that, that can help too. <laughs> you know that India, my state of Kerala, gets 20% of its GDP from remittances by Indian blue-collar workers in the Gulf. So uh, uh, sending back money home is not a bad thing. But having said that, I think you've, you've, you've asked an important question. If you're still an Indian citizen, if you are Indian citizens, then I'll be so bold as to say you can do what I did and go back. I lived abroad for three decades and more before actually going back and trying to make my contribution, hoping that what I had learned and acquired a mastery of in my years of international experience could be put to some good use in my own country's politics and government. Uh, one might argue that it hasn't been put to very good use, but that's another issue <laughs> which we can talk about later. Uh, on the other hand, um, uh, if you are not Indian citizens, there are obviously some restrictions on the areas you can get into. You certainly can get into investing in India, not just sending money back, but helping use your skills and expertise uh, into setting up businesses and ventures and so on. Uh, but you can't get into politics and public life. Um, however, um, there is a tremendous amount of scope. One of the things that I've seen is India's much greater consciousness of its diaspora than ever before. And a conscious change in the attitude where there was a time in the 60s and 70s where India's attitude to its own diaspora was, 
you know, you've made your bed abroad, you lie in it. You know, you're not our concern and we're not your concern. That attitude has changed dramatically in the last couple of decades. The entire invention of the so-called NRI category for non-resident Indian, which is an official category created and recognized under Indian law. And I asked in one of my books, India from Midnight to the Millennium, whether NRI stood for not really Indian or never relinquished India, because there's a little bit of both of those in every NRI. Uh, India is interested in its diaspora coming back to contribute, everything from bank deposits to investments to remittances. And I must say, from having spent time in America, there's an awful lot of second-generation Americans of Indian descent who make it a point to come back to India, uh, associate themselves with NGOs, um, uh, teach in literacy campaigns, something that many young people have done. Uh, there's even this uh, uh, wonderful young journalist, Anand Giridharadas, uh, who came back. Um, and, and in fact, when he was uh, living and working in India, uh, his parents having migrated to America just a generation earlier, um, his mother said to him rather memorably, you know, we went abroad to get a better future for our children. If you're in India, what are we doing here? And, and this sort of question does keep coming up in people's minds. So in other words, there is a lot of scope. India would welcome you much more. And there's a lot of receptivity to the, the ideas, the ways of doing things, the openness, the creativity, and the resources that you could bring. So come back. There's, there's room. There's scope. Thank you very much for your speech. I'm Jing from China, and I'm nice quite, quite surprised I'm a minority here because usually you can see a lot of Chinese people around. And uh, uh, my question probably will be less academic because I have uh, been in India for uh, two months just uh -huh. this summer before I come to RSC to study. Uh, I stay in uh, Hyderabad and uh, travel to New Delhi, Jaipur, and Agra. As a tourist, or were you working? No, I just uh, internship. Yeah, and. Uh, um, I was impressed by a lot of stuff. I mean, Taj Mahal is amazing, no doubt. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, the other other good stuffs like the active private sector. A lot of my friends, Indian friends, they actually have their own company. Uh, also, the strong civil society. Uh, but but on the other hand, there are always a but. The infrastructure, I mean, the traffic is a little bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, because I have to learn how to cross the road myself. And <laughs> and uh, congratulations uh, on surviving the experience. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I mean, I mean, still people they living in poverty, and uh, also uh, compared with China, China today, I mean, yeah, it's true. A lot of internet censorship, and if you want to protest, you have to ask for permission. A lot of problems in our own country. But on the other hand, if you ask a normal tax driver, he will tell you, anyways, our living standards it has been improved in recent years. So, you know, for both of countries, there are still people that are living in poverty. Which one is more important, is it democracy or, you mean, I mean, a strong state? And also to response from the one-child policy, it's actually a little bit old because nowadays, if two of you are from, both of you from one-child family, you can have a second or more, more child. And uh, also, Chinese people are not as that ignorant and indifferent um, about India because a lot of my friends, they traveled around India and uh, they love the movie Three Idiots. It's quite popular. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, do, I do say... Uh, 
I do see a good future of cooperation between those two countries. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. That was a very useful comment. I'm not sure there was a question that you want me to answer. But, <laughs> but, but I, I really welcome what you said because it's important for us to realize that there are far more Chinese in India today working, doing internships, doing jobs than ever before. And I hope that will increase the understanding between young people of both countries. So um, nowhere near the seven or 8,000 Indian students that there are in China. But there should be more, and we, should, uh, we would love to see uh, more Chinese tourists come to India and spend your ever stronger renminbi in our country. <laughs> Thank you all very much. on the same podium as uh, Dr. Tharoor is quite a daunting challenge, so I'm going to keep this as crisp as possible. Um, yesterday, somebody mentioned to me that they were rather excited to see Dr. Tharoor speak because it actuated for them the notion of India having an all-pervasive influence in the world. Um, and then the globalized Indian having successfully etched his identity. There are very few men who are able to reflect so many different paradigms of India at the same time who have been able to adopt the best of the East and West in such harmony. And we cannot be more honored to have such a person amidst us here on our final day of India Week. Um, we have a little token of appreciation. I'll now ask my colleague Sheena to come up and hand this over. It's, um, it's a crystallized LSE globe due to the theme of the globalized Indian and probably made in China, so <laughs> makes it well. Um, this evening and India Week would not have been possible without the continuous support of the LSE India Observatory and the Nehru Center, both who did not hesitate um, at the big dreams of small students, the LSE Annual Fund for dispelling the recession by giving extremely graciously, and of course Dr. Theroux's office for being such an efficient link. And last but not the least, the entire India Week exec Executive Committee and SPICE for putting this together. As our population increases, let's hope our perspectives do too. So here's to over a billion people and over a billion perspectives, for it is the 21st century and India has arrived. Thank you.